My guest today is Sean Anthony Thomas. He was born in Harlem, New York and raised in the Hudson Valley. He attended Choate Rosemary Hall for high school and later graduated from Brown University in 2003 with a Bachelor's of Science in Psychology. While at Brown, he was a captain of the Division I track and field team and was Ivy League indoor and outdoor champion in the triple jump. Dr. Thomas graduated from SUNY Downstate Medical Center with his doctorate in physical therapy in 2011, where he earned the Alumni Award for Leadership, the Community Service Award, and the Best Research Award for his thesis entitled Facilitating a Positive Change in Physical Activity Level with African-American Adolescent Girls Using the Trans-Theoretical Model. He's the author of Be More Today, a 40-day guide to a better version of you and host a weekly podcast called the Be More Today Show. He's married to Himanji Pai Thomas, who works as a public defender in Brooklyn, and together they have a five-year-old daughter named Sonali. I can't even tell you what it felt like going through the process. I don't remember because I'm so far removed from it now and living in what I wanted to do that the process doesn't even seem like it was a real thing. It was a real thing. Clearly, I struggled. I went through a whole bunch of stuff. But looking at where I got in the promised land now, if you want to call it, I wouldn't change a thing. If anything, I appreciate where I am now because I know where I've been. So if you really want to do it, you're going to make it happen. Trust the process and just be persistent. Welcome to the Water Word Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Sean Thomas. Sean is someone I consider a friend, and I'll tell you more about our friendship as we go along. As was explained in his bio, which I touched on, he has a variety of gifts, and we'll cover some of those in our interview today. Welcome to the Water Word Podcast. Brian, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Our listeners must know, Sean, that... Um, you and I are, I guess you'd call us podcast cousins. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, because I started out and I, there was a point where prior to getting my podcast off the ground, I was asking Sean a lot of questions about the type of mic, um, just different technical questions. <laughs> You know, you are so patient, man, and I appreciate it. And here we are now, just um, we're in a unique space because while a lot of people are doing the Facebook lives, podcasting is a little different, you know, and um, I really appreciate, you know, this is the giving you your flowers segment, your friendship and just your willingness to share what you know about, you know, this space to me and it's helped me to do what I've always wanted to do for some time. So I thank you, man. Not a problem. It's been a pleasure watching the podcast grow and you're doing a fantastic job. So cool. Thank you, you, man. Thank you. And you know, you must know that I, I, I listen to your podcast. I lean on you for a lot as well for inspiration. And I think this is such a creative space. And I think for the times we are in that both you and I are, are, are needed. And I, I'm thankful when people respond accordingly. It's, it just encourages me even more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I agree. So, so, Sean, you were born in Harlem, New York. Yes, sir. Uh, born in Harlem, uh, Lennox Terrace, 
if I recall correctly, that's where I, I grew up mostly as a, as a kid. And um, yeah, love New York. I love New York to death. And um, just for our, our listeners, um, some background about your childhood and um, things that um, pushed you to where you are now. And we'll get into it some more because obviously you're doing some great work as a physical therapist. But for our listeners, where did you um, get your start? You know, what, what was your childhood like? Yeah, so I, people always ask me, where are you from? Because I sound like I'm not from anywhere. Uh, <laughs> I sound like I can be from a variety of places. Uh, but I was born in Harlem, um, and I lived there for a couple of years. We also lived in Queens for a little bit, uh, and then we moved upstate New York to Orange County, which is, uh, uh, I lived in Newburgh, I lived in Beacon. Uh, I, was, I grew up mostly there uh, in, in grade school, middle school, to about ninth grade. And then I went to high school in Connecticut. I went to a boarding school in Wallingford, Connecticut, called Trope Rosemary Hall. Uh, it's one of the top three boarding schools in the country. And people know about Trope because they watch Power. Trope is mentioned on the show Power a number of times. I've never actually seen the show, but people always talk about Trope being on the show. And uh, it's a boarding school where I, I grew up for 10th through 12th grade. Loved my experience there. Went on to Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, which is, you know, New England, which is beautiful, about four hours uh, east of the city. And I studied psychology there, pre-med there, um, ran track and field there, really became a man um, um, there. And then I came back home. I came back to New York after graduation, did a lot of random jobs trying to figure out my path to physical therapy. And um, I currently now live in Brooklyn um, with my daughter and my wife. And we've been in Brooklyn since 2007 and it's been a great time being in Brooklyn we actually live in Bed-Stuy the new Bed-Stuy I guess people call it um but we we're, we're here and, and we're we're loving life right now so Chote is a very good school and um your parents by all indications had great plans for your life yeah, I can, I can honestly say my parents pushed us to be great. Um, mom and dad really gave us the tools to say, you know, we're here and we're going to make the most of every situation and you're going to be the best at whatever you do. They didn't care what I did, um, but they said whatever I did do, I had to be the best at it. And, you know, I, I, I remember, frankly, watching my mom uh, go over flashcards with me for math, multiplication, timetables. Uh, checking me on books that I was reading. She was really on me and on all, all of us. I'm one of five boys um, to really super seed expectations to be great, especially because we live primarily in, in areas that were not um, uh, racially even. You know, we live in a lot of uh, areas that we're a minority for the most part. And with that comes a lot of stereotypes, a lot of expectations or lack of expectations. And she always pushed us to make sure, look, I don't care what other people are doing. This is what you're going to do. And uh, I can truly say it definitely paid off. You are currently a physical therapist, but when did that become your, uh, I, I don't want to say your dream pursuit, but when did you identify that this was the direction you wanted to go in? Do you remember how young you were at that, when you identified right. PT? So. I went to a school called Tuxedo Park School before Choate. Um, it's actually located upstate in Tuxedo, New York. I did a graduation speech for them a couple of weeks ago. 
and another great school. Um, but I remember in, in writing the yearbook for our senior year, we had to write down, you know, things you want to be, things you want to do, where you see yourself in 10 years, all that stuff. And all I knew is that I wanted to be a doctor. And I actually wrote in there, I will be a doctor. I didn't know what kind of doctor, I didn't know, you know, what specialty, nothing. And um, I went to high school thinking about biology and thinking about sciences. I went to college, went to Brown University, and I took all the pre-med courses and I majored in psychology. And I was on the track for medicine, for pre-med, and organic chemistry struck me in the face and knocked me out. <laughs> and uh, my, 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 my goal to be a doctor was somewhat thwarted, um, but I was still optimistic I could do it. You know, I took it and I failed it. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, ashamed to say that, but I took it again. And, you know, and I did not pass that class. And I recognized that it was a hard class for me, um, but I was so determined to, to push through and see if I could do this thing. So I took the MCAT. Um, I took the, uh, the course for the MCAT, but I didn't take it seriously. I, I assumed that I could just kind of get through it based on what I knew already. And if, if anyone knows about any degree you get, I mean, you're a lawyer, Ryan, so you know, you can't fudge through these tests. Like you have to know these things inside and out. And, you know, I'm just 21 year old kid. I, I, I think highly of myself, clearly. I, I was very, very confident at the time and I walked into the MCAT like I got this and I did okay, but it was not a competitive score. And I remember walking to my advisor for the medical school, um, walking into his class, into his room for a meeting and he told me straight up, he's like, you're not gonna get into school. Like, you're not gonna be a medical doctor. You don't, you're not putting in the work that you need to do to get there. And of course, I'm like, oh, you know what you're talking about. I'm going to get it. Don't worry about it. I'll, I'll figure out my own way. And I applied to schools and I did not get in. And I should have taken his advice because he knows. He's seen people years on end apply to schools and, and looked at the effort that I was not putting in and recognized this kid is not serious about it. So I took a year off um, and I went back home and I was a substitute teacher uh, actually at Newburgh for seventh, eighth grade English and math. And I applied to a job at Mount Sinai Hospital back in New York City, back in Harlem. And uh, I worked for a program called Project Impact, which was a HIV education uh, and treatment program for kids who are 11 to 21. And my main job was to basically escort these young people to their doctor's appointments and to help social workers link their patients to social work services and also to be a beacon of communication and, and awareness in East Harlem. So I came back home, which was nice, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I, I, I wanted to be somewhere in the medical field, but didn't really have a, a, a clear path to that. I had all the pre-med stuff done. And I remembered back to my time at Brown where I had to actually do physical therapy. I had physical therapy twice. I had two knee surgeries. And the first one was in high school at Choate. And the second one was in college at Brown. And I thought, I don't know what happened exactly that, that sparked my interest in this again, but I said, what can I do with all the classes that I have that actually makes sense and can get me to be where I want to be? And at that time in 2005, most programs for physical therapy were transitioning from masters to doctorate programs. So I said, oh, this is interesting. So let me look at Mount Sinai if I can shadow there and get some volunteer hours. And I volunteered at Mount Sinai Hospital. And I recognized, and I remembered, man, this is actually a very good profession. It's something that I liked because I was already physically active. It was something that was in line with medicine, clearly, and I could be a doctor in it. So 
I had to take one class that I needed, and uh, it was anatomy and physiology. I took that one class, applied to school, and I applied to NYU, and Hunter did not get into Hunter. I applied to NYU, got into NYU, and I was ecstatic. I told my job, look, I'm out of here. I'm gone, guys. Uh, they threw me a huge dinner, gave me his coach bag, all this stuff. It was like a fancy, fancy thing. I was just so happy to go, and I went to orientation and met my classmates and met the advisors and met the, the head of the program and after we registered for our classes I, I got pulled into a room with the bursar and the head of the program she said i gotta talk to you for a second no problem she said one of your classes well so first of all she said great so glad to have you excited for you to be here one of the classes on your transcript though we can't accept uh it's a bio class that is um, a good class, but it, it doesn't fit our prerequisites for the program. So the program starts in two weeks, as you know. Can you take a class between now and two weeks before the program starts? And I said to myself, what, what school is offering <laughs> a full semester class that can happen now and be done in two weeks? So I got in a huge fight with them, or argument with them, and I stormed out and went back to my job, told them the situation. They understood. They looked me back with open arms. And I, I took the class I needed to take and reapplied to Hunter and Downstate, because the um, Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. Got into Downstate in 2007, and the rest is history. Now, as disappointing as that sounds, was it the first major disappointment you had in terms of your career track? Uh, I want to say the first major one was probably recognizing, no, I'll say yes. I'll say yes in the sense that I don't think um, going down the medical school route and that not working out was um, a bad thing. I think that helped me to really figure out what I wanted to do. Um, I don't think I had the patience or the dedication to give medical school at that time anyway. Um, it wasn't going to happen. Uh, I do think that my drive and my passion for wanting to be a therapist. And even looking back at it now, what I do, I love what I do. Um, I could not see myself in the hospital being a medical doctor right now. I don't think it's my personality. It doesn't really fit me well. And I'm pretty confident that God knew that. I'm pretty confident that, you know, God was trying to show me, look, I know you want this, but I think this is going to be a better fit for you. And as stubborn as I was to, to put this square peg in that round hole, he said, you know what? I'll just, gonna, I'll, I'll just show you myself. <laughs> not a problem. And he did that. Um, I think the, 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 the first major downfall or the first major blow was the year off. But another blow that was bigger came. And that blow for me really was my board exam. So I um, went through, through, through school for the first year. Um, I was doing a lot of things. Again, for me, I don't know, it's funny. I, I, I get into... Uh, being a creature habit very often. So I was in school, I was doing well, and I was also dancing professionally, and I was also serving in church. So I was doing a lot of things. And usually in grad school, they say, you know what, you got to stop stuff to really focus on what's going on. But of course, I thought I was special and I could do everything because I'm Superman, and I kept doing all kinds of things. And God slowly was like, okay, I'm going to have to take something away from you. And I was in this one class called Pathology. It's a one credit class. I mean, if you think about the one, the easiest class in any curriculum, one credit, like, you know, two hour class, all slides, 
Um, I'm in the class and I'm taking the class and I'm taking the test and I didn't pass the test and I didn't pass the final because you have to have a cumulative grade of a certain number and I didn't pass that. So the consequence was to do a oral exam, which is tough, but you know, but we, I did an oral exam, me and the other girl did an oral exam and she went in first and she came out, gave me a look like that was tough. I said, okay, I'll go in and do hopefully better. And I walked in and I sat down, confident as anything, and they asked me the question, any question, I don't even remember the question, but I went blank. Like, I don't know if you've ever been completely blank when someone asks you a question and you're just speechless. I literally don't know where my brain was. I don't know what happened, but I had no words. And looking back, I knew all the answers to the questions, but I just went blank. And the teacher was trying to even like help me. He was like trying to guide me, give me hints on terms of how to answer the questions, but I had no words. And he said, I'm sorry, but I have to, I have to fail you. And that was devastating because that for me took meant another year off, another year where I had to find work, where I had to be in a different class a year behind. Uh, I had to, to basically restart my, my whole program again with a different class. And it was probably the best thing for me because when I came back that following year, um, I was on. I didn't fail any classes. I was acing everything. I was laser focused. And that's probably how I should have been earlier on, uh, even when I was 21, uh, you know, back thinking about my medical school route. But it helped me. It helped me drastically just to get back on track. And I'm so appreciative of it, uh, even to the point where when I had my stint of trying to pass my board exam, which I took a number of times, um, I said to myself, look, if I can get back into grad school and I can get through grad school, then this is just another test that I have to get through. And, you know, it took me a long time to pass my board exam, but the same way I had to pass that test in grad school, I passed that test professionally and I haven't looked back ever since. And what many people may not understand, and I appreciate your transparency, Sean, is that sometimes while you're doing these exams and these tests and you're not getting the results you want, it's not only personal for you, but there are people in the, I don't want to say in the wings, but there are people who are supportive of you who are also, I guess we could say vicariously on that journey as well. Was that the same for you? Did you have I don't know what your age was or where you were in terms of relationships, but were you, were people closely connected to you also carrying that weight as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, so I graduated grad school when I was 30, um, which for some would be late because, you know, a lot of people kind of go to school early and they finish school and they don't take any breaks off. Um, but I didn't see that as a deterrent for me at all. And, and the people who, with me, you know, besides my wife, I really appreciate just pushing me and my mom just pushing me. Um, but there are other people who, as I've told the story to now, um, are inspired to go out there and take their tests. They're inspired to go out there and, and finish school. They're inspired to say, oh, you started when you were how old? And I have a lot of aides who I work with now who work under me. And they're always impressed that, you know, I started school, uh, grad school at the age of 25. Um, or oh, 27, because for them, they see things as, oh, well, I'm, tw I'm 21. It's, you know, I haven't done this yet, so it's over. What are we talking about? You have so much more living to do. Uh, and, and to be honest, people say life is short. Life is very long. You know, life is a long thing with lots of choices to make, lots of things to do, and it's never too late to get out there to do anything. So, you know, during my journey, I had a lot of people who were with me 
during that, besides my mom and my, my wife, they were classmates who I was with who also encouraged me. And we're in similar boats. You know, there a lot of us um, struggle through grad school. Grad school is not easy. I mean, if it were easy, everyone would do it. Um, but it, it's, it's cool to look back now and see that we all made it. We all made it through and we all supported each other throughout the entire process. I've also offered my own challenges. Um, I think the first time you and I met, I had to speak at our faith community in Brooklyn, one of the greatest churches in the world. And I told people about my own challenges going through law school and trying to get through the bar. And the thing about it is you never walk away without someone saying, you know what I'm experiencing or you know that's my story as well and i'm thankful that you shared that it's it's it seems to uh, be something that many people go through but not many share it so i i am really i mean i wouldn't have known sean unless you told me because you're the guy who on sunday mornings i'm like you know i believe help my unbelief you know with the workouts and <laughs> and the um I know accomplished author, numerous marathons, and your ministry. And let's just segue into your ministry at uh, our church in Brooklyn, KBT. Um, we arrived there around the same time, and you developed, along with others, a great ministry, the Spartans, and uh, all ages, men and women, who are now empowered to live better lives. I, I know you started it hoping that it would do what it's doing now, but in your wildest imagination, did you imagine the impact it's having now on the local church community? Not at all. Uh, when Ishmael Torres and I, he's my co-leader, when we came together and talked about Spartan and literally sort of a conversation about this one race called the Spartan race. It's a race that is held around the world. There's a company called Spartan. And literally, it was something that we were all afraid of. We had never seen it before. It was something that was new. It was uh, through the woods, uh, under barbed wire, climbing walls, carrying boulders, throwing spears. It just sounded like uh, out of a movie. And uh, we were all afraid of it. Um, but we said, we're going to try to do one of these. Uh, and we're going to train for it. So what started up as literally us looking at P90X videos and, you know, in, 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 in in Kinnaman Place in the basement uh, with about five people uh, has grown to be uh, so incredible. I mean, currently we have about 50 people who are doing a, a challenge called the, the, the Grit Challenge. It's 30 day run as many miles as you can challenge. Our Spartan Sunday crew now, email wise, is on over 150 people who are getting constant emails from us about what we're doing. Uh, our workouts every Sunday before COVID. Uh, we had about 30 to 40 people in our places doing workouts with us. And now online that we're virtual, we have anywhere from 500 to 700 views every single Sunday. And this is not at all what we had expected. Um, it has grown to be not just a workout, but a family and a group of people who are, are, are like-minded by faith and who also are not. A lot of our people uh, actually don't even go to our church. A lot of our people are from community. They're friends of friends. They're coworkers of friends. Uh, they're people who are out of town who met one of us at some point in time, or we met them at a race, and they just connected with us. Uh, some of them are community members who um, either came in their presentation with us or for us, um, or just people that we've met along the road. It's really been what I believe 
the world should be. A group of people who come together, support one another, no matter how you look, no matter what race you are, gender, color, etc. And we're all pushing each other for the greater goal. Uh, Spartan Sundays has become that, and it's it's been a great, great thing to watch. And by extension, you've gotten a lot of members of the faith community involved in marathon running as well. Yeah, I mean, that was never, ever our uh, intention. Uh, again, another feat where something that people say, why are you doing that? 1% of the population in America does the marathons. Why would you ever want to do one of that, one of those things and expose your body to that challenging feat? But Arthur and I, uh, Jamrock, uh, we did one together. And the following year, there were five of us. And the following year, there were 10 of us. And this year, we would have had almost 20 people if the marathon was going to be held. It's not going to be held until next year. But that, that growth has sparked, I will say, an army of people who literally are running, even this, this month, they're running every single day, putting in miles. I mean, people who were afraid to get off their couch and do one mile are out there running five miles. Um, and it's just amazing to see the fear drop and the, the courage and the confidence rise. And we all feed off of each other. So if someone goes out there and runs 10, I have to go out there and run 11. If I go out there and run 11, I know ours is going to probably run 12 the next day. And we become a family that inspires each of us just to be the best version of, of ourselves every single day uh, from various challenges, either they're running challenges or just even health challenges from doing burpees. You know, every month we do a different challenge. So we had a burpee challenge for a month. We had a drink water challenge for a month. We had a uh, get your hours of sleep in for the month. We had your do a certain number of push-ups every single month. You know, no sweets this month. Every month is different. So we're, we're doing the physical stuff. We're, we're doing the, the, the internal health stuff. Basically, our entire health message, we're bringing it to life. And it's exactly what we wanted, but did not ever think it was going to be this big. And before we close, I'll ask you to tell listeners how to tap into what is now the virtual movement with uh, Spartans, how they can get involved, how to check in on the weekends when you have the workouts, et cetera. I wanted to ask you, though, for those who are unaware, I know physical therapy is a growing industry. I mean, when I was coming up, it was lawyer, doctor, and we'll talk about career pursuits you know, back in the day compared to now. But you're speaking to students who have no idea about what physical therapy is. And you don't actually seem, Sean, like you go to work. It seems like something you genuinely enjoy doing. I'm sure if they said, Sean, you, you could just do this. We, we, we don't have to pay you. You would give it some thought, maybe, maybe not. But <laughs> I know you have a family to feed, so I'm just joking. But what is physical therapy for the uninitiated? So physical therapy is the study of using medicine to help people get back to functional goals. Um, when I say medicine, it can be a variety of different things, right? So we're talking about the body in general. And the body can go through a number of things that tax it, uh, whether they're injury that are caused by an incident, a fall, a fracture. Um, or overuse, right, repetitive things. Uh, no matter what it is, our bodies go through trauma, and that trauma can cause us to be less functional in terms of how we're walking, how we're moving. Um, my job is to get people back to function, period. That's the basic job of a physical therapist. And we do that through a variety of means, whether they are exercises or manual techniques to improve how the body functions. 
It's as simple as that. Uh, whether that means reducing someone's pain so they can do things better or improving their mobility so they can move a little better or improving their strength so they can do things a little longer. Um, everybody, no matter what you do, can have an issue, whether you're a painter or a surgeon, um, whether you're in front of a computer or you're sitting at a, at a steering wheel and driving a bus. Every, all of us have things that, that break us down. And our job is basically to restore function and to improve quality of life so people can get back to doing what they want to do. I love doing it. It doesn't feel like work because I love how the body moves. I've always loved that. And I love moving myself and I like seeing progress and change. But uh, yeah, man, we got bills to pay. I got, I got student loans, so we got we to gotta make some money with this. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but yes, I, I do love it. And I, I always wanted to do something that did not feel like work. That was always my thing. I said, if I, God, if you ever show me anything to do, I can do anything or I put my mind to it, but whatever I do, I want to walk in there and feel like I'm not going to work. Like I actually want to be here. And if I stayed longer, it wasn't like I'm dreading to go up there. And I, I never feel like I'm dreading to go to work. I always feel like I, you know, I'm going to work. It's become such an innate part of me that literally if I'm at work or someone's texting me throughout the week about physical therapy stuff, it all feels the same because it's just right now a part of who I am. I'm sure the same for you, Ryan. If someone asks you about a legal question, whether you're at the office doing your thing or someone asks you, you know, in a text message, you're just in that mindset all the time. It just becomes who you are. So that, yeah. that, that's how I see it. So you've been at JAG1 since 2012 and you're now the clinical director. Could you tell listeners a little bit about the clientele that comes to JAG1 sure. and your role as a clinical director as well? Absolutely. Uh, JAG1 is one of the biggest physical therapy companies in the Northeast. Uh, we have almost 70 offices. New York, Pennsylvania. Uh, we are expanding greatly during this time of COVID. Although many offices have closed down, we are getting bigger and bigger because we look at the client or the customer and put them first. Um, so if you've had to get an appointment for physical therapy ever, we have a great system to get people in so they can see providers quickly. Uh, and that, that's been our, our real model, looking at the patient, patient first, patient first all the time. Um, again, we have a number of locations and every location is the same in terms of how we treat, but every location is, is different based on the population and the clientele. Uh, my clientele specifically in Brooklyn is very diverse. Um, you know, Brooklyn is, is like this, the city now, so it's the melting pot. So we have all colors, races, genders that come through our doors and all issues when it comes to uh, ailments. So everything from arthritis and low back pain to knee surgeries and shoulder surgeries, people who need to work on balance, people who get just stronger, young people get hurt, you know, during their sports. Everything that you can think of basically comes through our doors, and mostly on the orthopedic tip. Um, so anything that's involving muscles, bones, ligaments, tendons, those kind of things. Um, and that, that, that's my main clientele for the most part of all ages, probably from the age of 13 until my oldest patient right now is 94. So uh, it's, it's a wide range of people who come for various things. But again, you know, life is long and people want to live and be functional. So they want to come in and get better. And that's our job to make sure that we uh, give them the tools to do that. And what is your role as the clinical director? My role is I help uh, my office, which is the Georgetown office, uh, function, period. And that, that is all levels. Um, from the time someone walks in the door to the time they walk out. So when it comes to scheduling appointments, I look over that. When it comes to schedules for our therapists, I'm in charge of that. When it comes to the budget for what we buy 
in terms of what we have in the office, I'm in charge of that. When it comes to scheduling vacations for people, I'm in charge of that. When it comes to hiring staff and firing staff, even during this COVID-19 period, we had to furlough some of our employees, having them uh, furloughed and then bringing them back and then seeing where they're gonna be. Um, everything that involves the client or the patient experience and the therapist experience uh, is on my shoulders, along with budgeting, um, you know, what we're putting out there in terms of the lights and the rent, what we're actually bringing in. Every single patient that comes in, I, I know number-wise what we see every single week, every single month. If we're on budget, on target to meet our budget every single week. Um, everything even to the air conditioning that just it has been on the fritz as, as it's been very hot this summer so far. But uh, anything you can think of from the top to the bottom, even to watering the plants, I'm, I'm pretty much looking, looking over. And um, the one thing I would say is that if you ever walk into our clinic or into my clinic, you'll never know that I'm the director. I never wanted anyone to feel like, oh, I'm the director and I'm running this place. Uh, and I learned that from our owner, actually, who um, is Richard Bodie, and he, one of the, the top owners now in the company, he was the owner of one on one first, and we merged with Jag one. But I watched him, I observed him, and you would have never known that he was the owner. He did everything from cleaning the bathrooms to uh, anything you can think of in the office, he, he would do. And it was never from a, a perspective of, I'm a director, so I don't have to do this, so this is below me. He just did it. And he, you, you, I watched that, I observed that, and that became a part of how I run my office. And, and I, I'm appreciative when people ask who the director is, because that means that I'm at least trying to emulate him in a, in a positive way. We'll return to our conversation with Dr. Sean Thomas after a short word from our sponsor. And as I mentioned earlier, Sean, your parents, based on the investments they made in your early education, because it's Brown, it's the Tuxedo um, Park School, Choate, all very good schools. And I'm sure, like all our parents, envisioned a better world for us. How are you reconciling what was no doubt your experience coming up with the world we live in today as black men? So, you know, I am the product of private education uh, from the jump. I, I really only went to public school for maybe two years and that was maybe third, fourth and fifth grade. Um, so I've, I've had a, a warped view in terms of how schools function. Um, it didn't really hit me until I was teaching. I was a substitute teacher uh, after I graduated and I was in Newburgh in their public school uh, teaching English that the resources are so crucial and are so uh, not, they're not shared appropriately across all borders, you know? Um, and I, I felt bad that I was exposed to so many things, but I, I, I made sure that wherever I was going, at least in that classroom setting, that I was gonna bring whatever I learned to that environment. Um, I think nowadays, especially with all the things that are happening in terms of our schools and, and our country and racism and you know, being black men in America, especially now, um, I'm more proud than ever uh, of my heritage or my culture. Um, I can honestly say that I, it was hard sometimes recognizing that 
you know, as a minority, you had to speak on behalf of so many um, because there were not a lot of uh, men of color in my classes. There were not a lot of men of color in the pre-med program. There were not a lot of men of color in, in certain environments that I was in, even in grad school, uh, two, three. Um, and, and you find that across the board in all states, you know, and, and it's something that we have to definitely work on it and continue to uh, educate and push for our, our young men and, and, and women to be in, 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 these, in these programs. But yeah, it's, education is, is key. And I think this is a pivotal time for the world to really um, look at itself and, and make some real decisions on how we're gonna even the plane, how we're gonna even the playing ground. I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement, I got into a conversation today actually about that. Um, an older Jewish man who's a patient of mine, and we talk every, every week about all kinds of things. And uh, it's it's cool because he's in his seventies and I'm in my you know I'm almost forty. So is he an ally? Uh, he <laughs> he's an ally for certain things. I mean he's very, he's very religious, you know, and and I'm religious clearly. So we talk about uh, a lot of things, but we always come back to certain things that we just disagree on. And uh, I mentioned today about Black Lives Matter, and he quickly said all lives matter. And I had to just really have a conversation to him about why at this point we're talking about everyone is okay. Yes, all lives do matter. But at this stage in the game, right now, right, right now, Black lives matter a little more because they're a little less in terms of what's happening in terms of the world. And we got into a heated debate about it. Uh, but at the end of the day, we, we both did decide that the, the playing field has to be leveled and that we have to come together to reconcile the injustices and the the um, the biases that are happening, and that goes to education. That goes for uh, a lot of different things in terms of society. Um, and you know, as a as a black man, like I said, when I was speaking on behalf of all black men in these minority schools, it was one thing. But now, seeing so many people be so vocal uh, on social media, in platforms, at their jobs, uh, it's it's very empowering um, to be black, to be a black man. And to be an educated black man, I think everyone should be using their platforms for some kind of social change, whether it's on a podcast or whether it's at their job, you know, respectfully so. Um, because even like today, I, I heard that uh, Nick Cannon got fired from his job for being a little too vocal about how he felt about, you know, certain things. So it's a thin line. It's a very thin line. But I do think that uh, whatever platform that we have as people of color, especially as men of color, we should um, stick to it. And if that means education, then we should just definitely go for it. If it means physical therapy or legally, you know, whatever it's going to be, we should definitely push for those things. I touched on before we started recording, and it's something you mentioned. One of the reasons why I do the podcast is I work with broken individuals as a public defender. Uh, many of them, um, we do our best to assure them of their dignity because that is often lost in the process. And I love the podcast because it allows me to talk to people who inspire like yourselves. But I see um, in many of my clients, you know, the but for grace, like they have beautiful names. Clearly their parents had dreams for them and just for circumstances, maybe, you know, location, um, lack of resources, 
put them on a different track. And the, the will it takes, the willpower coupled with, you know, we call it grace, but coupled with luck, so many things have to come into play for many of my clients to make it. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about um, black clients. I'm talking my white clients who are poor. If you close your eyes, Sean, we're having the same conversations. The same needs are apparent, the same dysfunctions. So in times like this, I really miss leaders like Dr. King who envisioned, you know, with his Poor People's Campaign, a world where some of our issues intersected so much, we could have more of a unified movement, a unified cause. I'm longing for that type of movement now, especially since, as you indicated, we have allies who are now vocal about issues that concern Black lives. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, Ryan, I got, I got to say, I, you know, my wife is also a public defender. The work you guys do is, uh, it's priceless. Um, and I've, I've grown to appreciate it even more. Only because I, I, you know, I, I see what my wife does and I know what you do. It's not an easy job. Um, but you give a voice to those who don't have a voice and you really fight the fight behind the scenes that I wish more people knew about. Um, so yeah, the fact that you're out there on your own front line, uh, fighting for the, the, the rights and liberties of people who have been disenfranchised even to this day and are entrapped in a system that is broken. Um, kudos to you just for literally saving lives every single day. I mean, I'm, I'm on a front line as well, but it's a different front line for you. You, you guys are really holding down and working in an environment that is, is volatile and is, is challenging, but you're making the best of it and you, you're giving hope, I think, to people who, who really, really need it. So kudos again to you. Appreciate it, man. And, you know, you're an inspiration as well. Uh, oh, you had before, and let's just touch right on it, um, Be More Today, author, movement, podcast, new website, uh, t-shirts, memorabilia. <laughs> um, but before Be More Today, there was the hashtag always on the move. Yes. How, how are they? Or how are the two similar? Are they different? Do they merge? Yeah. So always on the move is me. I mean, that, that's my hashtag. That is, if, if you could say like a, a motto for your life or, um, you know, a catchphrase or a song, always on the move is, is me in its entirety. I have always been on the move since I was a child, uh, whether it was dancing or playing any sport uh, or running or anything. I've always hated not moving. Uh, and I, I think I've got my hand in so many things because I am best when I'm doing something. Um, I'm up at five o'clock in the morning every day. I'm in bed by 11 o'clock every single night. I'm literally like a machine when it comes to what I'm doing. And literally it goes from morning until night. I get up, I do my, my runs in the morning. I go to work, I come home. Uh, I'm doing stuff with my daughter. I'm doing stuff with podcasts or whatever. I go to bed and the same thing happens the next day. It's constant movement. And on the weekends too, you know, another hashtag would be no days off because that still goes with always on the move for me. Uh, be more today is the bigger, or I guess one of the umbrellas that for me is under my personal hashtag of always on the move. Because Be More Today encompasses not just movement, clearly, but it also encompasses uh, our, our trials, our struggles, um, our challenges, not just physically, but also mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Um, and it really encourages people to 
look at themselves as ordinary, but that they can do extraordinary things. Uh, so it doesn't always include, you know, movement. It can, it can literally be you doing things that are static at the same time, uh, but it does en encourage people just to be better. Um, and like Terrence always says, to make the rest of their lives the best of their lives. So always on the move is my personal hashtag. I've, I've had that probably since I was a kid, but the be more today is the, is the, is the branch right now that, that I'm running with. And I, I love the motto. I love the mantra. It's become my second, my second thing, my second part of me, my second limb, if you will. Was always on the move part of the way you were scolded as a child or? <laughs> I don't think so. I didn't. I didn't get in trouble a lot. I remember I got in trouble one time because I said something to my mom, and that was that was it. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I truly believe it's probably because I, I just like learning stuff. I liked um, getting my hands on new things, uh, whether it was learning the saxophone, learning how to do sign language, learning how to learn French and Latin. Uh, playing soccer or skiing. Um, I've done all these different things. And I'm the kind of person where, you know, if I'm not good at it, I'm going to get good at it. Um, you know, I, I, I used to go bowling with my cousin. And he used to always beat me. And that got me so upset. I had to go out there and I had to be a better bowler. And I became a better bowler. Um, I'm just that kind of person where I, I want to be the best at everything that I do. And then I either move on to the next thing or find something else to, to work on and, 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 and make that my skill and just be like this renaissance man that I think that I am. Not that I am, but I've always had this concept of, I want to just do everything really, really well. And, you know, that's something that has, I think, really resonated with me when it comes to my job. I, I work hard at my job and at whatever I do, not because I have to, but because I want to make sure if my name's on it, I'm going to do the best that I can do with it. Like, I don't want anyone to think that if my name's on something, it's going to be half of anything. If my name's on it, it's going to be the best, the best version that I can put out there, my best effort, et cetera. And, you know, I, I present for my daughter, I present for my, my staff, I present for my, my volunteers and my, my interns, because I think that's, that's what it should be. Always on the move for me is that. Making sure that if you're going to be on the move and doing things, you're putting your best foot forward. And that's probably a combination of always in the movement be more today. If you're going to do it, do it well and, and, and make it the most and the best you can do. What inspired your desire to become an author? Listeners should know that you have a book, Be More Today as well, Devotion. I do have a book, yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. It came out in October of 2019. It's called Be More Today, a 40-day guide to a better version of you. And to be honest, uh, I, the book only came together because I was doing a lot of posting and a lot of running. I was training for the marathon in 2017 and, you know, you're alone on these 5 a.m. runs. It's dark. I have my headphones on. I'm running and a lot of thoughts come to you when it's quiet. The same way you would have devotional thoughts, you know, in the morning when it's just quiet, these thoughts come to you. And every time I went for a run or did a race, I'd have these thoughts and thoughts about the world, thoughts about, um, images or metaphors linking fitness to life, uh, linking long runs to challenges in, in life, looking back at things that I didn't do well and how I could have done them differently. Um, and every year since I was a kid, I gave my parents to my, my brothers um, a resolution list, uh, things that I wanted or I thought that we should 
start doing, stop doing, and a goal for our lives. I mean, I, I, posted, I posted these things on my wall since I was probably 13 years old. Um, if anybody knows me, you've been in my house at New Year's Eve, you got a sheet that, that has some goals on it. And uh, I combined those with this, with this book and what became Instagram posts after every run, I recognized that. And someone said to me, you should write a book. You're putting all these things online like, and, they're, and they're really inspirational and they're uplifting. Put things together and just make a book. And I, I put it off for the longest time. And it wasn't until we went to Paris in 2017 that I said, let me just start to write some of these things down on, on a computer. And what literally became a bunch of Instagram posts um, and random thoughts and quotations that were coming from Claudette Jackson, who is our uh, one of our elders at, at King the Road Temple. She sends out weekly or daily text messages with inspirational quotes. She Those blesses quotes, us too, man, still. Yeah, so every day um, yeah um those quotes became the 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 segues for me for or the heading i guess you would say for the day and you know if, if you go up reading devotionals um i've always loved devotionals because they kick your day off um, you know right i said if i do write a book it has to be devotional style or something that i can read that's not going to be long but will be short and to the point and i just started putting things together and there, there was order to it but it wasn't until I put my grad school work, which in grad school I won an award for, our project was uh, called the Trans Theoretical, the Theoretical Model of Change. And it was a model that was used to uh, decrease the uh, incidence of obesity in African-American girls who were of a certain age, I think it was like 13 to 15. Uh, we did all this research looking at physical activity and this stages of change model that was used that goes from pre-contemplation to the termination phase or the action maintenance termination phase of how you get an, uh, a behavior to start or to stop. And there are steps you go through to say, you know what, I want to stop smoking. I want to stop eating fast food. I want to stop uh, procrastinating. I want to start working out more. Whatever that goal is, there are steps you can do and periods of things that you should be doing to get from A to Z. So I put that, my research stuff together with my Instagram stuff, with my Claudette Jackson quotations and Literally a year and a half later, uh, a book came into existence, and with the thanks of or the help of my wife, who edited <laughs> a lot for me, uh, this, the book it has been a blessing, and it's been out, and it's on Amazon, and it's on uh, Be More Today page as well. But it's it's been awesome to see it come out of nothing. Like literally, it came out of nothing. I'm I'm an author, yes, but anyone really can write a book. It's 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 not that it's challenging. It just takes dedication and like anything else, the process, going through the process of the editing and the thoughts and how you want to be presented and, and all those things is, is the work, but anyone can be an author because we all have a story. We all have a journey. We all have something that we can share with somebody else to get them to where we want to be or even where we are, where we're going. So I'm blessed by it and I'm really happy and excited for it. And listeners should know your ministry of dance as well. You've brought a lot of powerful songs to life through your choreography which is a gift you have as well i don't think i have ever been in any church community and seen such a powerful interpretation of a nina simone song that to me was powerful one that it was shared in a church and two that it was received <laughs> you know yeah talk yeah. to us about your that gift of yours so I got to give kudos to my mom for that. Um, 
we were involved in a group called Signs. I'm sorry, <laughs> look at that. I'm completing my groups together. Uh, God's Hands is the name of our group that we started uh, in 1993. And at a time where uh, movement in churches, especially Seventh-day Adventist churches, was not always received well. Uh, my mom started this, this movement, the sign language group, where she knew sign language because she worked with uh, kids who were hearing impaired and wanted to do a ministry involving movement. And, you know, for the kids who don't sing, um, I can sing, but I don't really feel comfortable singing. It's not really my, my gift. Um, this became something that I really gravitated to because I was good at movement. I was good at dance. And we learned sign language, which, uh, again, is ASL or signed English. And uh, we did songs. We did various songs. And the group was a big group. It was all young people between the ages of uh, 8 and 13. And we traveled, we did uh, performances in various churches, we did songs at camp meeting, we did uh, songs all over the place, and it was a blessing. And the group grew to where my mom stepped aside and we grew up doing the group. So when I was at the age of, you know, when I came back home, I was 21, I had back into the group and did more things with the group. Um, and, you know, I also danced professionally in terms of, um, African and modern and jazz and tap and hip hop and whatever else, uh, you know, in the world doing various groups and teaching at sports club and Kumbay dance, which is now no longer because they, they tore it down in Brooklyn. But um, I combine uh, some of what I learned in terms of those dance styles back into um, God's hands. And when we moved to Kingsborough Temple, again, we, I wanted to bring what, again, bring your gifts, right? We always say bring your gifts to wherever you go. Um, there was a Black History Month program happening and I was asked to help out with it. And I helped out with it. And that program became the beginning of many more programs that we did every single year. And, and you know, fighting for the Nina Simone song and uh, the Fela Kute song and all the other songs that are traditionally not heard in our Christian communities, but have such a link to our history as Black people, our history as people of color, our struggle in America and in the world. It, it, it seemed like a disservice to me and it seemed almost conflicting to me not for us to put these songs in front of our people and to do them in a way that clearly resonated with our Christian community. Most of the songs were talking about faith and hope anyway. So it, it made sense to me to put these songs into, into play, into motion. And, and I got a lot of flack for it. I got a lot of pushback for it because again, it was something that was new and like we know in most faith communities, no matter what you believe, if something is new, you're gonna get some flat for it. If something is different, someone's gonna have something to say about it. But when it comes out great, when it comes out awesome, they're the first ones to be like, oh, you did a great job. So it's been a blessing uh, doing signs of praise and signs of praise with friends and all these other ministries that popped up as a result of the initial God's Hands movement. And um, I, you know, I'll continue to put out content for Black History Month and, 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 and things that are relevant to uh, inspiring young people to see that we're just not all singers. We're not all preachers. We're not all musicians. You know, there are various ways to minister and to show your talents and to show your gifts uh, through song, through dance, through other things that are still giving glory and still acceptable in his sight. What are your thoughts about learning and movement yeah i think our educational system uh needs a boost um I, I think that the best well 
the most effective way for us to learn as people is always going to be with diversity, right? I don't say diversity in terms of color, I mean in terms of learning styles. Everybody learns things differently, right? Whether we're talking about visual learners or people who learn by actually doing certain things, there has to be some versatility to it. And I, I've, I've seen in terms of how we uh, learn things in physical therapy, motor control and motor learning um, is the class that we take. And in that class, we as students were tasked with the, um, the, the notion of trying to teach someone a skill or a, uh, a task. So teaching someone how to juggle, teaching someone how to braid or how to crochet, teaching someone how to do a dance move or a step. Um, all these things that are learned can become motor controlled uh, the more that we do them, right? And, you know, if you go to the gym, you work out, you, you do a certain weight for a certain time, you do it once, you think you have it, right? Uh, your body gets used to it. Um, it's called law of accommodation. It's like anything that you do. You do something once, oh, you have it. But in, that, in essence, you don't really have it all. You did it one time, right? And morally, you, you did it. But in terms of it really sinking in to so becoming a part of you, if you do that same thing next week, you probably have a hard time doing it because you didn't put the practice in, you didn't put the repetition in. Your body hasn't fully digested what's happening for it to be a motor control thing now that's sunk into your system. So when it comes to learning, uh, you know, movement is crucial because the more things that we do uh, repetitiously, the, the better we can really digest certain things and the better we can be at them. So, you know, whether you're learning in terms of looking at a book and learning things that way, or bringing that book to life somehow and allowing someone to uh, be a part of the learning experience, that's more impressive. That's more impactful than a static learning experience. Um, I think we're seeing that now even with the Zoom learning that's happening, right? A lot of our kids now have gone from going outside and interacting with their students in a classroom environment where the room becomes their, their, their learning experience, the room becomes their, their template, and you have you know, instead of a book in front of you, you have the book on the wall that the kids actually do themselves. Now we're, you know, down to a computer screen where kids are trying to digest information that they can kind of hear, hopefully, if everyone's not talking at the same time and they're not being distracted by what mom's doing on this side and dad's doing over here, which is giving the same thing. It's a very challenging time now for our kids. Um, so I, I do believe that we're going to have to find a better way especially as we're heading towards September and thinking about schools opening, a better way for us to teach our children and to teach our college kids and high school kids as well, just to be able to learn uh, a little more diversely than, than, than on, just on Zoom. It has to be bigger than that. And to be honest, with all the social media that we have, sort of Instagram and Facebook and what have you, there has to be a better way for us to do things in terms of, of, of making that experience more grandiose. It has to be. Um, it just can't be a, a, a Zoom uh, session for everything. We, we, we've come this far in terms of technology. There has to be some kind of 3D something that someone's going to bust out because I, I do believe that movement is going to be crucial. And for us to go from moving every single day and getting our 10,000 steps into literally sitting in our chairs for eight hours and staring at a screen, that is not what the body was intended to do. So we, we got to figure out a, a better system moving forward. And hopefully COVID-19 goes away completely. We can go back to our classrooms. If not, we got to figure out a better system moving forward into uh, 2021.
So, Sean, I guess it's safe to say that if you weren't an elder, you'd probably be a deacon because they move the most in church. <laughs> <laughs> I probably would be. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, please tell listeners where they can follow your next move. Um, give them all the media where is it easier or better for them to order the books on Amazon or to order it from you and get a signed copy? I know Amazon has a profit sharing right system that may not work for the entrepreneur spirit entrepreneurial spirit so you can get the book at be more today dot com um or be more today book dot com you go to be more today book dot com directly that's actually my personal site so if you go there and buy the book, the book is twenty dollars. And it's actually cheaper than on Amazon. On Amazon, it's about $27. Amazon takes their cut out, clearly. So I can sign books for you if you go to my site, bemoretodaybook.com. Um, if you're looking for digital copies of the book, that will be uh, also on Amazon, and that's only $10. And that can be sent on Kindle versions, which is great. It's a great little read for you to do. Um, but yeah, bemoretoday.com is our website where you can find information for our podcast, for our music, Our Words for Life, uh, Volume 3, is out right now on all social media platforms. And, uh, of course, my book is out there as well. So, bemoretoday.com. And on Instagram, it's bemore, the number two day. Uh, and the Be More Today show, is it's actually its own hashtag on Instagram. And, of course, I'm Sean DPT, Doctor of Physical Therapy on Instagram. And Sean Thomas on Facebook. Listeners should also know Sean is available for a book signings um invite him to your church to talk about the book and i imagine have you done any virtual book book discussions yet you know it's funny i actually i i did a um a graduation speech a couple of weeks ago and i was doing some book uh discussions right before covid hit um i was doing some discussions actually with some um some law offices that that my wife gave me some contacts for and I had a couple of churches that were signed up for me to come present on the on the book, and then COVID hit, everything shut down. So uh, we'll see what happens when things open up back up again. But yeah, I'm always down to talk about anything health related, anything that is uh, geared towards people taking steps to greatness, especially for young people to recognize that failing forward is 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 the best thing that they could ever really do, and um, you know, putting our health message into practical play. Uh, all those things I'm all about, and be more today is my medium for. And finally, there is someone who is studying for an exam or pursuing a certain career path and the signs from where they are and pointing towards it, they seem, perspective-wise, they feel far off from their goal of accomplishing either passing the exam or finding their career path. Having experienced what you've experienced, what would you say to someone who is on that journey now where they're trying to figure out, should I be even bothered with this career? Should I take this exam again? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll say, you know, this is, this is simple. Trust the process and just be persistent. It's what I constantly say. And, you know, it's one thing to say, I should have been a medical school student. I mean, that's what I wanted to do, but that wasn't in the cards for me. So I tried that and that didn't work out. It's another thing to say, look, I'm supposed to be a physical therapy student. And I tried that and it was challenging, but I got through it. The challenge is gonna happen. You're gonna be challenged. You're gonna, you're gonna be tried through the fire. You're gonna be tested. I mean, that's why it's called graduate school. 
uh, it's not for everyone. It's not. Uh, it, but it is something that when you get through it, you appreciate it so much. So the process and the journey is something that we have to cherish. We have to appreciate. It makes us stronger in the end. But just trusting the process and being persistent in what we're doing is the best thing we can do. Putting your best foot forward, blocking out the distractions, uh, really dedicating your entire self to these tests. I mean, I had to cut everything off. And I took my exam 12 times. I failed that exam 11 times. 11 times taking the exam, four years taking the exam, money being part of the exam, telling my wife every single time, oh, almost this time, babe. Sorry, get to the next time. So if you really want it, if you really want it, you have to go out there and get it. And I guarantee you, although I took that test for four years, I, I can't even tell you what, what it felt like going through the process. I don't remember because I'm so far removed from it now and living in what I wanted to do that the process doesn't even seem like it was a real thing. It was a real thing. Clearly, I struggled. I went through a whole bunch of stuff. But looking at where I got in the promised land now, if you want to call it, I wouldn't change a thing. If anything, I appreciate where I am now because I know where I've been. So if you really want to do it, you're going to make it happen. Trust the process and just be persistent. Any takeaways? Thank you so much, Dr. Sean Thomas. And I think something our listeners should know as well is in, in keeping with what Sean said, you are closer to your goal than you think, especially when you're doing it. And I think for me too, with my exam, I saw how close I was. And as I, with all the investment, as you indicated, as I can do it, I'm close. I have to just keep going. And I think that that is encouraging someone as we speak. You're close. You're closer than you think. Just keep going. Um, take the breaks if you need to, but keep keep at it and you'll, you'll accomplish your goal. Um, very great takeaway. Dr. Sean, thank you so much for being a guest. Please share with our listeners when the Be More Today podcast airs so that you know, they'll know about that as well. Sure. The Be More Today podcast airs every Monday, every Monday morning, weekly. Uh, we also have a new podcast called the Words for Life podcast, which is going to be airing every Wednesday, weekly. So Be More Today Umbrella, two podcasts, Monday and Wednesday. We're trying to keep everybody going. The Words for Life podcast is going to be more about uh, Words for Life and our Christian experience and really pushing people um, to see that words are powerful and the journey for looking for their why can be something that is very, very impactful. Um, but yeah, we have two shows coming out. Be more today's show on Mondays. Uh, our hashtag is ordinary people doing extraordinary things and the Worship for Life podcast coming on Wednesdays, both on all streaming platforms. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much. Please give your regards, uh, give our regards actually to your family and um, thank you, man, for uh, just sharing your experience, being transparent and giving us so many gems to take away. Um, looking forward to the move, the journey. Um, Sunday mornings are tough. You know, I, I hold on for dear life, but thank you so much for inspiring us through the workouts to be our better selves as well. And Doc, thank you again for being a guest on the What A Word podcast. Thank you for having me. There's something about the way we perceive success. 
that results in one of the greatest tragedies of our time. And that's the belief that successful people, the ones at the top of their game, that talent is what punched their ticket, that destiny brought them to the finish line. And that's wrong. It's wrong because it takes the journey, the struggle, the scratching and clawing that it took to get to the top of the mountain and throws it out the window. It completely mitigates what's most important. In the real world, the one we are living in, it doesn't matter who you are, you are never entitled to a result. Victory is a product of the fight. The biggest favor you can ever do for yourself as you progress through life's up and downs, through the good and the bad, when things get rough, is know that you are going through what every successful person, every champion, every innovator has gone through in the history of mankind. Struggle is beautiful. It's a sign that you are in the midst of what separates great from average. It's a necessary step and it's the most important step you will ever take because 99% of people can't see past it, right? The world sees struggle, sees hardship as a time to pack it up, to walk away, to be intimidated. But the best, I'm telling you, they look at struggle differently. Just like you can't get fit without blood, sweat, and tears at the gym. You can't make deals without the hustle. You can't make things happen if you don't move forward in the face of adversity. When the word no is staring you in the eyes. It's all part of the process. Winners walk on. If you want something bad enough, you know that being uncomfortable is an ingredient. If you want to be the best, your mindset has to reflect the best, right? Let others focus on the tip of the iceberg. You know excellence lies in everything underneath the surface, in what cannot be seen. So take mediocrity and make it excellent. Take what's yours and hold it up for the world to see. Because what hurts now in the present is the very same thing that will transform your life down the road.